This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Caleb J., Joanna, Caleb F., Emmeline, and Julian. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Caleb J. He asks, can people in heaven see what's happening on earth? The Bible doesn't answer this question, Caleb, one way or the other, but it does provide some hints. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, for example, we read this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So, if, as the author of Hebrews says, we are surrounded by witnesses, then those witnesses must be witnessing something, right? That sounds like the saints who've gone before us can see us and know what's going on here on earth. Others object to this, though. They say that heaven is supposed to be a place of happiness. And if you had to keep watching what's going on down here on earth, that would make you very unhappy. But here's the thing. When we are with Christ, we have a new perspective on everything. So I think those saints might be able to witness God's plan of salvation unfolding in perfect peace. They have what we might call the God's eye view. Having said that, I don't think the witnessing in Hebrews 12 is actually that kind of witnessing. The point, I think, is that we are surrounded by the examples of faithfulness of those saints, and that those examples should motivate us to emulate them. It's not that they can see us, but that we can see them and model ourselves on them. For me, though, the visions of John in Revelation 4 and 5 and 11 are more telling. There, it certainly seems as if God's salvation is being witnessed, seen, and celebrated by the heavenly hosts. And for that to happen, they would need to have some knowledge of what's going on. Now, this is not something that we can know for certain, and we shouldn't take it too far. You'll sometimes hear people say things like, oh, your grandfather is looking down on you from heaven, or something like that. But that's not something the Bible clearly teaches, so I try to avoid phrases like that. I think there are better ways to express the love of people who have gone before us. And now Joanna asks, where was Paul when he wrote 1 Thessalonians? There's a strong theory about this that says that 1 Thessalonians was actually the first epistle that Paul ever wrote, or at least one of the earliest. Years ago, I actually taught a Bible study going line by line through the Pauline epistles in chronological order, or at least the closest that we can get to knowing the chronological order. And in that Bible study, we started with 1 Thessalonians. Now, Thessalonica was a port city in northern Greece. If you were traveling down from Macedonia, as Paul did, it would be an obvious place to stop. So that's what he did during his missionary journey. 
The church in Thessalonica had been freshly planted when the letter was written to them, but of course by that time Paul had moved on. What happened was this. His associate, Timothy, caught up with him and gave him a report of what was happening in Thessalonica, and then Paul dispatched a letter to them in response. And it was in Corinth that Timothy caught up to Paul, and that's where the letter was written from. If you check a map, you'll see that Corinth is also a port city, but it's much farther south than Thessalonica. If you were driving from Thessalonica to Corinth today, it would take you about six hours, and you'd have to cut through Athens on the way. It took much longer than that to make the journey in those days, which is one of the reasons why Paul had to write letters instead of going places himself. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Caleb F. Let's give him a round of applause. Now listen to Caleb's question. He asks, why did the Pharisees say that Jesus cast out demons by the power of the prince of demons? Caleb, to answer a question like this requires a certain amount of speculation, which means the best I can do is give you an educated guess. If we use our imaginations, though, to put ourselves in the position of the Pharisees, I think we'll start to understand why they made this particular false accusation instead of something else. First, you have to remember that Jesus was performing miraculous signs before their very eyes. The Pharisees could see him raise the lame and heal the blind. They could see him make lepers clean, restore outcasts, and even bring a dead girl to life. Everybody saw these things happening. In fact, witnessing these signs is what made most people in the crowd follow after Jesus. Now, if you were an enemy of Jesus, the obvious way to oppose him would be to contradict him. If Jesus teaches something, then you would try to show that he was wrong. And in Matthew's Gospel, we see the scribes trying to do exactly this. By the same token, if people are following Jesus because he's doing miracles, the obvious thing to do would be to disprove those miracles, to debunk them, to show that they're fake. If the crowd said, Jesus works wonders, then you, as his enemy, would say, no, he doesn't. But the Pharisees don't have that option. People have witnessed the power of Jesus firsthand. They know what he can do. If you've seen Jesus heal a blind man, or if you're the blind man that he healed, the Pharisees can say, no, he didn't, all day long. And you'll just think they're crazy, because you know he did it. Now, the Pharisees don't want to say things that the crowd will laugh at, because they care deeply about the opinion of the crowd. The whole reason they can't just lock Jesus up and throw away the key is that the crowd supports him. They're afraid of the displeasure of the crowd, and that's their challenge. How do they oppose Jesus even though they cannot deny his power? Now, we don't know who exactly came up with the answer, but some clever Pharisee figured out what they could do, and it seems like this really caught on. If they couldn't deny Jesus' power, then they could malign the source of his power. Yes, they said, he can cast out demons, 
But that's because he's in league with the devil, their overlord. He has power, but it comes from the prince of demons. This answer becomes a kind of talking point for the Pharisees. They seem to have repeated it over and over until Jesus addresses it in Matthew 12, and even then they keep it up. In fact, this tactic has never really gone away. Enemies who cannot deny the power of Christ will instead deny the goodness of Christ. If they cannot prove that Christianity is false, they try to prove that it is evil. And they do it for the same reason the Pharisees did, to justify their rejection of Jesus. What they should do, what we all should do, is see that the power of Jesus actually points to his kingship, and that his kingdom is proof of his goodness and love. Jesus possessed unimaginable power, and yet, out of love for us, he laid it down and went to the cross. There has never been a more beautiful use of power than that. And Once you've seen it, it's impossible to deny that that beauty is heavenly, not demonic. Whenever you're trying to understand why people in the Bible do what they do or say what they say, it can be helpful to try to enter into their minds and figure out how they must have been thinking. Obviously, you have to hold these interpretations lightly, but I think these exercises can give you a deeper appreciation of what's happening in the biblical narrative. So next time you're wondering, pretend you're in the story and ask yourself, what would I need to be thinking in order to do or say what they did and said? Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first question comes from Emmeline, who asks, is it fun to break the bread at communion? It seems like it would be. Evelyn, I wouldn't exactly call it fun. It's actually deeply awe-inspiring. Paul tells us to discern the body as we partake, and for me, that involves meditating on the actions of Christ as we see them pictured symbolically. When I think of Jesus breaking the bread at the Last Supper, I think of his body broken on the cross for our sake, and I think of the love in Jesus' act of hospitality. He breaks the bread so they can eat. He gives himself so we can live. So I wouldn't say fun exactly, but I would say it's exhilarating. It's exciting. It's a feeling that's more like exchanging rings at a wedding service than, say, jumping out of a tree or doing a flip. And now Julian asks, Have you ever come across a chronicler's question you can't answer? Julian, I feel that way about most questions I get. You all ask so many great questions, and a lot of time the best I can do is guesstimate, as I've done several times in this episode alone. For me, that's a good thing, because part of the lesson I hope everyone takes away from the big question is that not every question can be answered. Some questions are unanswerable, but it's still okay to ask. In fact, it's important to ask, because knowledge, not ignorance, is the goal. And if we get in the habit of not asking our questions, there are a lot of things the Bible does teach that we won't know. When you ask questions I can't answer, I try to be honest about that before making a guess so that you can see how this works. 
I'm not one of those sentimental old people who's always raving about the wisdom of kids, but honestly, these questions have certainly taught me a lot. So keep on asking. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.